Tis the new year. Ho, ho, ho. Ho, 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 and happy new year. And whatever, whatever. So Trevor asked about New Year's resolutions. Does anyone do those? Good, because they're just pointless. Uh, I was talking to someone earlier. I've mentioned this every year. It's like the third Monday of January is the most depressing day of the year because you've already trashed all of your New Year's resolutions. You're not doing them anymore, so you still have all the weight that you gained. Uh, you have basically have a hangover from all the holidays because there's no real holidays going on. It's just kind of like, meh. The weather's usually gloomy, and then all the credit card bills come in. So that Monday, you got to go to work, and it's just really depressing. But the good thing is, is that with Jesus, we don't have to worry about that. Well, you still have to pay your bills. But with Jesus, we can actually, like, move past that, and we can, like, find hope and joy in everything, right? Like, just like the video. When we do those things, when we love God and we love people, in the midst of that, we find peace and joy. And that's good stuff, right? So um, Nancy and I are heading out tomorrow. We're going to go to New Zealand, and uh, we're going to go visit our son. Uh, He's over there with Youth with a Mission. He's in a discipleship training school, and uh, so we get there, and we'll visit him for a day, and then he flies to, I don't even know where, he's going somewhere for two months. Um, And uh, so we're excited to be able to go over there and see him and see how he's doing, but also we have some good friends over there. Uh, and then we're going to kind of tour around uh, New Zealand. They're going to host us. And so we're really looking forward to that. And, and uh, this will be the first time we've done international travel. I mean, how many of you guys have done international travel all over? And Canada does not count, okay? It does not count because that's, you know, I can say that because I'm Canadian. But uh, international travel, as you know, is like, it can be like a mixed bag, right? It's like it can be really cool. There's really neat things about going and seeing other cultures, you know, just different uh, foods and architecture and music and art and cultural uh, norms, everything like that. And it's pretty neat. You can, you can learn all kinds of things um, if you're really willing to kind of absorb the culture and, and enjoy it for what it is. And you can see how God moves in other countries and how God is, you know, he's just so creative and dynamic. And it's a really neat thing. But there's a downside to international travel. It's like sitting on a plane for hours and hours and you know, uh, layovers, and sometimes you might be in a culture or in a particular area of a country that's just not that great, you know. And so the good thing about travel is you can leave, right? You can go home. So, you know, a nice place to visit, but I wouldn't want to live there, you know, some of those kinds of places. So that's great. Well, there's another kind of uh, experiencing a foreign country that you could do, and that's immigration. So I, like I said, I'm a Canadian, so I immigrated from Canada And it was kind of funny. I was talking to my uh, son-in-law. He wasn't my son-in-law at the time. He was uh, getting ready to marry my daughter, Brianna. And uh, I said, you know, your parents and I have something in common. I said, we both immigrated from, or we're both immigrants. And he's like, he looks at me and goes, yeah, but you didn't have to jump over a wall. And I was like, that's funny. That's funny. So I understand, though, that they're, like, with immigration and going to a foreign country, Uh, immigration is still, you know, you're choosing to go into this new nation, but the experience can be very, very different. And going to uh, experience another culture or going to live there, whatever your reasons are, um, uh, the experience of getting there can be very, very different. So another level of experience in a foreign country, and this has happened throughout history, is being forced to go to experience another country. It happens all the time. There's been a slave trade. Um, and uh, throughout Scripture, we see that the people of God get uh, get dominated by foreign cultures. And then there's a season of time where they actually got taken from their land, from Israel, 
to a foreign country. What's interesting about that, though, is that it's God is the one who sent them there. God used Babylon to grab the people of Israel and move them to another country because he wanted to get their attention. He wanted to get them to understand that what he had taught them and equipped them and purposed them to do was to love him. And in that, they were able to experience life and wholeness. And so we also see in the Old Testament, there's this scripture after scripture, there's prophet after prophet who are speaking to the people of Israel before they get uh, you know, taken into captivity. They're like, just love God, love people. You know, there's all, they had the law and there's these things that God wanted them to do, but that was to bring flourishing to their lives. And then it was also to honor God and to say, and to display to the nations around them that God is loving, God is gracious, God is kind. And so through the prophets, he's like, you need to repent. You need to turn from your sin. And they're like, nah. <laughs> and it's crazy how many times when you read it, you know, you, you can kind of read it from our point of view and you're thinking, why did they do that? It's so obvious they had God, but because, you know, the kings and uh, you go read through the, the book of Kings and um, they're like one minute they're serving God. They have a good king. The next minute they're not. And they're just back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And, and God's continually saying, I love you. Turn to me, follow me, and I will use you to bless the entire planet. That's what God wanted to do through them. And they kept going, nah, <laughs> we're going to do it our way. So God finally says, okay, <laughs> like a father disciplining his children, I'm going to send you into exile. And so they do. They get taken into exile. So they're living in this place where, um, where they're just, they're captives. They can't do what they want. They can't live like they want because they're captives. Eventually, they finally get the idea. God continues to send prophets to them saying, hey, turn to me. And eventually they do. And so after 70 years, they go back to Jerusalem. So now they're back, and there's a restored relationship with God. So the problem is, is that really they're still not home. They're really still living in exile. So what does that mean? Well, since the beginning of time, God created everything to be a certain way. He created Adam and Eve, and he wanted them to live in a certain way in this intimate relationship with him. But then this crazy thing happened called the fall. So sin enters the world, and from that moment on, until the time that Jesus comes back the second time, until his second coming, we are not home. We are living in a fallen, broken world. So basically, all of humanity, no matter what state we're in, we're basically living in exile. Happy New Year! <laughs> As, yeah, you know, I mean, that's, isn't, that, isn't that great? Isn't that exciting? Isn't that good news? Yay, we're all living in exile, and we have had for thousands of years. Great. Well, like I mentioned earlier, though, because of Jesus, there's hope in that, though. Because of Jesus, what we're called to do as Christians as we follow him is not just to hunker down and hide away, but it's actually to engage and to build his kingdom and to love him well and to love people well. That's what we're supposed to do. So once again, from the moment of the fall of humanity into sin until the second coming of Jesus there's going to be this idea that we're not at home. There's going to be a longing. The scripture talks about all of creation is crying out. Even creation itself is moaning and groaning under the weight of the sin uh, that humanity brought upon itself. So then Jesus came the first time. We just celebrated his, uh, his coming, Emmanuel, God with us. 
And when he came, he sacrificed himself for us. So he set in motion a process where we can start experiencing new life here, where we can start this renewal process. And it's the whole idea of a now but not yet kingdom. So the kingdom of God is here. Jesus came, died on the cross for our sins, and he overcame sin and death. He rose again, and we have access to eternal life here and now, not just later. But his kingdom is not going to be completely fully realized until later. So we have a now kingdom where God is using us to do new things and renewing us. and, And then we have a not yet kingdom. And when he shows up, then everything will be put to rights. And that's one of the big hopes we have as Christians. No matter how bad it gets here, we know one day he's coming back and he's going to wrap it up. And it's going to be amazing. <laughs> and his heart is that as many people as can that come, they repent, they turn towards him. And that, and that moment, it's not a, oh, no, it's a, oh, yes, moment. But until that happens, we're still living in exile. This is not our home. This, I mean, I probably don't have to tell you, this isn't paradise. <laughs> you know, um, there's a lot going on. And the further a culture or a people group moves away from loving God and loving people, the more in exile of the more of that, that weight of not being in our home will be felt. It'll start manifesting itself even more. So as followers of Jesus, we do live in exile. We live in a foreign land. This is not our home. But there will be a day when we will meet him face to face and we will be home. And that's exciting. So, but that makes the question, so what do we do in the meantime? (laughs) Okay, great. We're living in exile. What do we do while we live here? How do we live in a place that's not truly our home? I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, God sending his people into exile. There's that 70-year period where they are living in exile. And um, it's 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 in Babylon. It's a hostile culture. And uh, they were captives. They were prisoners, you know, to a, to a foreign nation. It wasn't necessarily the best place, the best way to live. They couldn't do what they wanted to do. They couldn't worship the way they wanted to worship. And so Jeremiah is one of the prophets that God was sending to them, and he spoke to them. So Jeremiah didn't actually go into captivity. He stayed in Jerusalem. And uh, you can read the book of Jeremiah to figure out why. But he was continually prophesying before the people were taken captive, and then during the captivity, just speaking to the people, trying to get them to continually turn to God and have hope and trust in God and his plans and his purposes. And Jeremiah says this, Jeremiah 29, 4 through 6, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile. Once again, God carried them into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens, eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number and do not decrease. So God's saying to them, even though you're captive, you're living in exile, you're living in a hostile environment, I want you to prosper. I want you to grow. Translate that to now, no matter what culture we're living in or where we're at, even if we think it's hostile, Our job is to advance the kingdom of God. We are to increase. We're not called as Christians to hunker down and go, you know, Jesus, please come back. Please come back. I mean, we want to pray that, yes. But we're not called just to hide away. We're not called to just kind of turtle up into our own little Christian communities and just ignore and let everything else go to hell in a handbasket. That's not our job. 
He's saying, I want you to increase. I want you to prosper. And so you can think, well, that's great. You know, we can just, we can prosper, we can grow. Um, we'll just, you know, our, our Christian communities, yeah, we'll engage with culture and we'll try to be nice. But, but that's not what he's saying, because there's more. As followers of Jesus, our focus should be firmly set on the kingdom of God. I think I have that quote. Can you pop that up? There we go. Uh, dedicating our lives or ourselves to the glory and honor of Jesus. In every aspect of our lives, we should actively experience and demonstrate the love, grace, and redemptive power of Jesus, making his presence evident in all that we do. So that's that first part. That's what he's saying. I want you to increase. Don't decrease. I want you to live a life that honors and glorifies me and is transformed by me. And so in all that you do, uh, his presence is evident. But there is more. Let's move on to verse 7. This is what he says. Also, so in addition to increasing, in addition to increasing in a hostile environment, also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. He's saying pray for the peace and prosperity of the people who have you in captivity. (laughs) Pray for it, because as it prospers, you will prosper. So it's not, once again, about making some neat Christian communities where we're isolated from everyone around us. No, it's about let's engage with our community. Let's pray for the peace of our community. Let's pray for this community to prosper. Let's pray for all the people in this community, no matter who they are, to prosper, to grow. And the reason God's wanting to do that is because he wants all people to come to him. And what he's doing is as we prosper as followers of Jesus, that means that we're going out and we're sharing the love and grace of Jesus Christ with other people, and then they get to meet him, and they get to know him, and they get to see who he is. So as we prosper, as long as we're doing it in a godly way, as long as we're doing it in a way that honors the Lord— then the community prospers. And by that, people come to know him. And the kingdom of God grows. And people have the opportunity to enter the kingdom of God and experience the amazing love and grace of Jesus Christ. Oftentimes when we think of prosperity, we might think the first thing is, you know, financial, which is, which is nice. But I think we need to look at the whole package. Spirit, soul, and body. That we all prosper as a community. And the only way to truly prosper with your soul is to encounter Jesus. It doesn't mean your life's going to be perfect, but it's a, a lot better. <laughs> and you have hope. We have another quote. Following Jesus means we're called to constantly pray for and actively participate in the well-being of our community. Our aim is to cultivate an environment where God's peace touches everyone and the whole community prospers. So as followers of Jesus... Living in exile, that's one of our goals. Honor him and see our community prosper. So that leads to another question. Well, how do we do that? What does that mean? Well, for the rest of the month, that's what we're going to be talking about. So this idea of living in exile. So for the next three weeks, we're going to talk about maybe specific areas about what that means to live in exile. And I'm going to go over them really quick. And uh, Pastor Joe will be doing the next two. But... um, as we, as we seek the prosperity of Yakima, as we seek the prosperity of the community around us, like, what does that mean? Well, one of the obvious things was pray for peace, right? So there's, 
pray for peace, but what about that prosperity aspect of it? What does that mean? Well, there's another prophet. Uh, This time he was in captivity, um, Isaiah. He was in Babylon with the other Israelites. And um, he wrote to them, and he spoke to them, and he was speaking words of encouragement to them. And uh, he kind of felt like, in the scripture I'm about to read, he felt like he was a failure at what he was supposed to do. And that the people of Israel were kind of a failure at what they were supposed to do because they were supposed to be a blessing to the entire world. They were supposed to serve God and let people see that, you know, God's pretty awesome. (laughs) And uh, they weren't doing a very good job because they're in captivity. So obviously there was something going wrong. But when God said that I will bless you through all people, that was foreshadowing to Jesus. So um, all of those prophets, all of them were speaking towards a coming. Once again, so there's this now... So he wanted them to do things now to bless the world. But ultimately, it was when Jesus came that that would be truly fulfilled, that Jesus was the one who would truly bless all of humanity. But there was still a part that God wanted Israel to play, and he was trying to get their attention. He was trying to say, hey, worship me, follow me, lean into me. Let me shape you and mold you, and that's where your life will prosper. So Isaiah says to this, or says this in verse uh, 49, 1 through 3. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. Now, this is a statement of purpose. And it's kind of interesting because it goes between talking about an individual and then the servant Israel. But in that, there's, he's saying, I have a purpose for you. Isaiah, I have a purpose for you. Israel, I have a purpose for you. He goes on. But I said, I have labored in vain. This is Isaiah speaking. I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and the, my reward is with my God. So this is a statement of Isaiah by, about vulnerability. He's like, I feel like I screwed up. <laughs> you know, these people are in captivity. We've screwed up. But yet, my reward, who I am, what I, is in your hands. It's a statement of saying, God, I acknowledge that what's due me is in your hands. I leave it to you. And now, in verse 5, we pick up. And the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather himself or gather Israel to himself, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. So he's saying that just to go after the people of Israel, that's too small. That's not my part. This is God speaking. That's not, I'm not just going after one people. What does he say? I will also make you a light to the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is God's heart throughout the entire of Scripture. I want all people to know me, because as they know me and as they follow me, as they worship me, as we have a relationship of love and grace, then you flourish. And that's what he's saying. Yeah, you, you kind of screwed it up. You kind of failed. <laughs> but that I still have a plan. I still have purposes for you. And the famous scriptures after that, Jeremiah 29, 11, actually explains that even more. 
But in this moment, he's saying, I'm going to use you. You're going to be a light. So there's three things out of the scripture that I think, or that, I think that I know we will be talking about. The first one is, we serve through the transformation and declaration of the word of God. So this is being the voice of Jesus. What I mean by transformation is not that we're transforming the word of God, but first and foremost, we need to let the word transform us. He says in verse 2, Isaiah, He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. The word transforms us. It does. And there's a, in uh, Hebrews 4.12, describing what the word of God is, it says, For the word of God is active and alive, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. We need to let the word of God be that sharp sword in our own lives, judging our attitudes and our thoughts, and making them godly, and cutting away the things that are not godly, letting him transform us. This is, we call this discipleship. <laughs> it's this slow, everyday process where we're engaging with God, where we're engaging with people, we're allowing the word of God to change us and the Holy Spirit to move in us. It's called discipleship. And then we do the declaration part. Wherever the spirit leads, wherever he leads you, we need to speak truth. We need to declare the truth of the word of God and what he is teaching us. But it's got to be with that grace and humility. In Acts 17, Paul is in a meeting, or uh, Paul is, um, uh, he goes into a new city and Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus, there we go, and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. So as I walk around, I look carefully at your objects of worship. So he's kind of comes to the city, he's looking around, there's like idols everywhere. They're worshiping everything. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So, you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. So there's this public declaration of the word of God. And I think there's times where we're called to do that. We're called to speak, and everyone's going to do that in different ways. doesn't mean you're going to stand on a street corner with a microphone you know, or a megaphone or, I don't know, you may be speaking to crowds, you may be speaking to just one person at a time. But God has called us to speak the word of God into our community and into the people around us as we let it be spoken into us and transform us because that's really key we don't want to weaponize scripture and oftentimes that's what happens is people get judgmental and they weaponize scripture they use scripture it's not affecting their life at all and we take it at we go after people <laughs> and yet we're so full of rot ourselves we can't do that that's not how this works so that's the voice of Jesus the word of God Next, we serve by making Jesus visible. This is the character and heart of Jesus. Back to the Isaiah. He said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. So this splendor is the glory of God. God wants to manifest himself or display himself through us. So how does that work? Well, the best way that we reflect Jesus to our community and to other people is by being like him. <laughs> as we change into him, as we become like him, then when people look at us, they don't see us, they see Jesus, which is great because 
I don't know. I look at my side, inside me sometimes, and I'm like, there's no, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you don't want to see that. <laughs> I want him to see Jesus. 2 Corinthians three seventeen through 18 says it this way. Now the spirit of uh, now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So, as we contemplate the Lord's glory, we become like Him. And the reason that is is because what that contemplation that means worship. As we worship God, then we become like him. Uh, There's a saying uh, Timothy Keller is uh, known for and others, but uh, what you worship, you become. And actually, it's in one of the Psalms. It talks about the idols. As you, you worship this dead, mute idol, you become like that spiritually. You become dead. You become mute. What we worship is what we become like. So contemplating the Lord's glory means worshiping him. And that means with all of our life. It doesn't just mean on a Sunday morning where we sing songs, which is really important. It's crucial for us to do that, to be together. This, this dynamic when we're singing together and worshiping God, it's life-changing. It's just we're entering in as a, as a group of people saying, God, you are amazing. <laughs> I lift you up and exalt you. You are worthy. It's a beautiful thing. But we need to be doing that on our own. We need to be getting in and spending time with God and engaging with him. And as we worship him, we get transformed into his likeness of his son, Jesus. Timothy Keller, to quote uh, from a sermon he wrote many years ago, the secret to freedom from enslaving patterns of sin is worship. You need worship. You need great worship. You need weeping worship. You need glorious worship. You need to sense God's greatness and to be moved by it. Moved to tears and moved to laughter. Moved by God is and what he has done for you. Or, excuse me, moved by who God is and what he has done for you. And this needs to happen all the time. That's what worship is. Getting into that place where you you start realizing, oh, you are just amazing. (laughs) God, you are so amazing. There's all kinds of ways of doing that. One is singing songs. Another one is spending time being thankful for what he's done for you. You rehearse the glory of the Lord and how he's moved in your life. And it just, it does transform you. You get to that place where you're moved in the core of your being. And you start becoming more like him with weeping and with laughter. I like the laughter part. (laughs) So we worship. We become more like Jesus. So we're the face of Jesus with the character and heart of Jesus. And then we serve our community by being the light, which is the hands and feet of Jesus. Isaiah 49, 6. He says, Is it too small a thing for you to be my servant? Or it is a too small a thing for you to be my servant and to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. Once again, I'm not happy with just one people group. I want everybody. And then he says that, I will also make you a light to the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So he's saying, we're going. I want you to go out. I mean, everybody. Everybody has an invitation into the kingdom of God. Every person on the planet has an invitation to the kingdom of God. And he wants to use us to be a light as Christians, as followers of Jesus. 
in the book of Acts, Paul actually quotes the scripture where he's got the Israelite people. They're just like, nah, <laughs> once again, they're still saying, nah, <laughs> he's talking about Jesus. Nah, we're good. <laughs> we're going to stick with the law. We'll do it our way. And so he's like, fine, I'm going to the Gentiles. And then he quotes the scripture. What he's doing is he's basically applying that same mantle to us as Christians, as followers of Jesus. So one of the ways is, like we mentioned already, one of the ways to be a light is to declare the word, to speak the word of God. But another way is to actually go and serve people, be the hands and feet of Jesus in our community. Matthew five fourteen through 16. This is Jesus talking. He says, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people uh, light a lamp and hide it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Once again, it's like, if we are the light of the world, we don't hunker down, we don't hide it, we don't keep it to ourselves, we don't build our little Christian communities. We go out, we say, you know, this little light of mine, I'm going to make it, or let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Anyone? No? Yeah, 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 yeah. Don't let Satan it out. Yeah. Well, it should be like this big, massive light, right? This little light, yeah, I mean, you know, maybe. But I'm thinking if you let Jesus and the Holy Spirit move through you, you could be like this big, you know, billion uh, candle watt power of light. Just give people a sunburn. I got sunburned yesterday. It's really funny. They were warning me about going to New Zealand because it's their summer over there. We're heading into 80s and 90s. And apparently the atmosphere is kind of thin over New Zealand. I'm not sure why. But you burn easier. So I was all worried about getting burned over there. And last night, or yesterday, I was blowing leaves around and I got burned. So. I don't just have rosy cheeks. I'm not wearing blush. I've got sunburn. I just wanted to clarify. Anyways, we're called to be a light. And like it says, let your good deeds shine before men. So as we're out in the community, as we're letting, you know, the word of God transform us, as we're being transformed into the image of Jesus, we go out and we do things for our community. We serve our community. And that's, that's what we do. So we're the voice of Jesus. We're the character and heart of Jesus, and we're the hands and feet of Jesus. That's how we do it. That's how we see the prosperity of this community grow. We pray for peace, and we connect with Jesus, and we let him change our lives, and then we go out and we just say, hey, Jesus is awesome, and we serve people without an agenda. We don't make people projects. We make them what they are loved, cherished people of God. God loves all of us. And so we need to live our lives that way. Amen?